Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octa non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Sirut K. Chawla is a London-based integrative psychotherapist. She's not a monk on the mountain. She is in the trenches with you. If you're not following her on social media with her other 300,000 followers, then get on that. Make that happen. She has some incredible content, which we'll touch on, but I would like to talk about a couple of other things specifically with her today. She uses an integrative model of psychotherapy, which means she uses different therapeutic styles depending on the client and the circumstance, which tells you how well-versed she is in this profession. Her main modality is the psychodynamic psychotherapy, which is a derivative of the classic psychoanalytic tradition. And that all comes down to say that she basically talks to the person about what they've gone through, helps them understand what's happened before to the present so they can become better in the future. Sarut, thank you so much for being here, for your time. I think it's going to be an incredible conversation. Yeah, I've been really looking forward to speaking to you. I enjoy your content. I think we have similar perspectives on the world. We both clearly like stoicism. So yeah, thank you for having me. No, I, it's, this is going to be tremendous. And it's interesting, the philosophy that you grew up with Americans would call it Sikhism, but it's Sikhism. There's so much similarities mm-hmm. because I, when I first found your content, I was like, that looks very Zen or that feels very Taoist or that feels very Stoic. And then as I got to research you and dive into everything you're doing, I was like, oh, okay. So explain to us what that mm-hmm. is and, and how that culture influenced you. So Sikhism is the religion I was born into. And I would, I don't think of myself as a very religious person, but I think if I was to be born into any religion, I'm really grateful it was this one. And there's so many teachings that do inform my life and the way I see the world. Sikhism is a fairly young religion. If you think about, you know, religious tradition in India, it's about 300, approximately 300 years old. And it was a response to the Hindu Muslim infighting. So the first guru, um, guru <laughs> in Sikhism, he took the first born son of you know uh, Hindu or Muslim families and they joined Sikhism and the purpose of the religion was almost to be I guess a pacifier but contrary to you know other eastern social ideas I guess it's a, a very egalitarian religion so men and women or girls and boys are equal women also go to battle and we are, so there's a caste system in India where the warrior caste, but, you know, our teachings are things like um, never unsheathe your sword unless it's to defend somebody else. So we're meant to be carrying swords or um, daggers. It's called a kirpan with us, which most people don't, but <laughs> it's one of the things. The priests do. All our priests carry swords. And there's a lovely... um 
I guess, aphorism or phrase. It's called Jardi Kala, which means rising spirits in the face of darkness. The general sort of like cultural ethos is work hard, play harder. We're quite cheerful people, I think. We're known for, you know, <laughs> drinking whiskey and working hard. <laughs> um, and Sikhs are often the butt of jokes in India. There are a lot of Sikh jokes. And I think it says a lot about our community that it's just one more thing that gets laughed off. You know, no one's particularly sensitive or, you know, a bit of a snowflake about it. It's just, yeah. So, you know, those things, um, having grown up in that community, uh, my parents, especially my father, are, you know, very religious and they actually live by the teachings. My grandmother was incredibly devout and probably my dad's mom, the best person I've ever met, the most moral, fair person I've ever met. And growing up with examples like that is is invaluable. It's an incredible privilege. Yeah, to actually see that played out in real time, because we often see people yeah. that will, they can quote something or they can write it down or they can try to use this as a justification for whatever they're doing in the moment to rationalize mm. it, but to actually see it as this constant, to believe in the principles and understand that people are fallible, but the principle is resolute, it is unchanging. And that makes us endeavor towards that that ideal. I think part of that is to do with, again, a teaching, which is that our version of worship is not sitting in a church or praying to a deity or a god, it's service, seva. Worship in Sikhism is being good to your fellow man. Something that a lot of people do is give 10% of their paycheck to charity or to their local Gurdwara, which is the Sikh temple. We have a free kitchen in every single Gurdwara or Sikh temple you'll go to in the world. There's something called Langar, which is a free kitchen, um, at least once a day. And anybody can go and eat for free. It's really wholesome, good, nutritious home food. And again, the egalitarianism comes in there because we all sit on the floor on mats together. So the idea is that a beggar and a king would sit side by side and eat together. There's no sort of hierarchy. And it's the people that attend the Gurdwara, all of us, the community, that will cook the food and serve people and wash up and so on. So like with my grandmother especially, I learned so much from her about, never because she preached at me, ever, but because I watched her and internalized what she did which was how to treat everybody, just to every, spoke to everybody in the same tone, which was just kind and neutral. She almost always gave any situation where there was contention or conflict the most positive possible reading instead of, you know, taking, taking things in a bad way. She always gave people the benefit of the doubt, just a very charitable reading of the world. I know a part of that is obviously temperament and her own upbringing and so on. But I think you can't remove the religious stuff from it because it's all baked into the cake. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I love that you're looking at it more from a, um, it feels like you're doing it more from like a philosophical aspect more than religion. Because for some people, when yeah. there's religion, there's like guilt that may inhibit or encourage behaviors that may not necessarily be in line with the rest of the ethos. But the way you're doing it, you're this Bruce Lee idea of absorbing what is useful, discarding what is useless, and then adding what is specifically your own. That's what we have to do mm. every day. A great quote. And yeah, you know, because I have um, mixed views on religion. These experiences from being younger, 
which were also mixed, to be fair. There are some dogmatic parts of Sikhism, which I really pushed against um, and was very rebellious about as a child um, and young person. So things like um, we aren't meant to cut our hair. So there are certain markers that that distinguish you from everybody else and sort of let everybody know by your appearance that you're part of this community, which is meant to be defenders of the you know defenseless or weak or vulnerable or whatever. So the men wear turbans and the women keep their hair long. I couldn't see the point of that. So it explained to me why now, you know, in the 90s or early, whatever it was, that's relevant or why that matters. And tradition isn't a good enough. I was really probably an irritating teenager to parent. Because explain to me why and tradition isn't a good enough answer. And if you can't give me a good reason, then why can't I cut my hair? And yeah, my, my family was incredibly dogmatic about it. Or, you know, you never get, ta- I'm like, covered in tattoos. So like, you never get tattooed. <laughs> and because you're not meant to, I guess, deface God's creation. And again, give you know, if you're a good person, what the hell does it matter? So, yeah, those kind of things, dogma for dogma's sake or tradition for tradition's sake, um, that doesn't work for me. The other, th- the other teaching, the stuff that is, like you said, quite in line with Buddhist philosophy or stoicism and is more a way of life than a set of beliefs that you use to bolster your own opinion of yourself. So, and then I guess the other part of it is, again, growing up in India, there's so much conflict that is caused by religion. So people um, like Hindu fundamentalists going after Muslims or the Muslim Hindu kind of infighting or rivalry, it's rioting. There's always something going on um, in the news. And you just think, and, and for what? For God? God would like this? You know, this is... You're killing people in the name of God. Amazing work. Very um, pious and great job. So for those those parts of religion I can't stand, or like you see on Twitter, no offense to Americans, I know not all American Christians are like this, but there's a small group of American Christians that are very loud on Twitter. And I, I find their behavior absolutely disgraceful. Like it doesn't seem to reflect the teachings of Christianity. It just seems to be a lot about pointing fingers at other people, casting aspersions at other adults' personal choices that are none of your fucking business. Um, they aren't hurting anybody else. It's got nothing to do with you, you absolute busybody weirdo. <laughs> you know, just that condemnation, judgment, contempt, inserting yourself in other people's business, proclaiming to be the authority on what's moral and what's not and I can't stand that. But then the other side, there's there's so much to Christianity that seems so valuable, like the idea that therefore the grace of God go I. I really like that because we are all fallible and to a certain degree all living on a prayer. <laughs> Anybody else's circumstances could just as easily be your own if the you know cards were dealt a little bit differently. So yeah, I, I really appreciate those those parts of like you said, you take what works and don't take what doesn't. Yeah, and I think to me that's the skill, that's the mastery when we can absorb truth irrespective of source. Because how many times have we seen a quote and we're like, man, that's powerful. And then you see who said it and you're like, I don't like that. It's like, well, who? Yeah. 
right? It's like, oh, I liked yeah. it up until I saw yeah. who said it. But if it struck a chord yeah. in you, then there's got to be some truth. And you're you're recognizing that. So who am I to just say, well, because I'm going to throw everything out that could be useful to me because I don't like what this one person said at this particular time or they have this particular ideology or lack of ideology or whatever the case may be. That comes back to hurt us, which means it comes back to us not having that knowledge to help someone else. So how big of an ego do I have to say something like that? It's like, no, I need to take myself out of the equation, become this vessel of knowledge and give it to those that need it. I think it's also related to intellectual humility and intellectual flexibility, which was a steep learning curve for me. Exactly what you said, you know, you um, take a positive breeding of people you admire and like and and view as similar to yourself and when you've kind of done the us versus them thing in your head you hear a good point from somebody that you know you've you've cast as a them or an other and then you really feel irritated (laughs) that they've made a good point or kind of begrudgingly say all right I guess they have a point there that's a good whatever it is and over time I found well, that's, it really has changed. And I find that, one, nobody owns the truth. And the truth really is a guiding principle for me. Um, I care about what's true. It, it doesn't matter so much about being right. I think what matters more is being correct, if that makes sense. It absolutely makes sense. And, and it comes back to exactly what you talk about in, in a lot of your content, where you're saying that if you can't find humanity in these people that you oppose as adversary, then you're losing humanity for yourself and everyone else involved. And it makes it very easy for us to justify that. And like you said, that cognitive dissonance, we need to listen to that. Like if it's rubbing us raw, then it's not what this person said. It's more about where it's incongruency within myself, where my actions and words or beliefs not aligned because that's what's causing it. And frankly, nobody else can solve that except for me. So like you said, having that humility to understand that I'm probably wrong, maybe asking that other mm. person, even being able to try to change that sort of confirmation bias, going to a person who you see that absolutely opposes this belief that you have, and then ask them in a very neutral way. It's like, I'm not really sure how I stand on this. What do you think? And now you can mm. allow yourself to be influenced by them. You can be this vessel to just to empty yourself. When I work with with people, I'll talk about Empty and empathy are spelled similarly for a reason, because we have to empty ourselves of intention, expectation, trying to solve the problem, trying to gotcha on this person because they're going through a hardship. That doesn't help them at all. Also, it's just the nature of life. How are you going to be a human being on planet Earth and not face adversity? Like, be realistic. It doesn't, you know, you're never going to be insulated from it to, you know, some degree. And what I was going to say was that, you know, when that cognitive, because Again, you see this so much on social media. Cognitive dissonance causes people to lash out because they're punishing you for, um, I guess, eliciting that within them. And I think it really is related to some sort of sense of shame because you think about our conditioning, like in the schooling system, being wrong is the worst thing you can be. You literally fail or you're left back grade or you're stupid or the back of the class or whatever it is. People really, really struggle to be wrong. And I think... It should be everyone's work, maybe, <laughs> to to really address that. It's it's okay to be wrong. It's good to not know. When you know everything, you're covering up all your gaps in knowledge. When you don't know everything, you're receptive and willing to learn. 
you're far more likely to accrue knowledge, widen your lens, widen your horizons. And I mean, you know, you said I might be wrong or sometimes we're wrong. I honestly think it's just worth operating from the assumption that you probably are wrong. We're all fallible human beings. I think it was Bertrand Russell, maybe, um, to paraphrase him, who said, I'm not willing to die for my beliefs because I might be wrong. Like, yeah, you might be. I think about even in the last few years, how much my vantage point or my views have changed on things. And I welcome that. I think it's good to keep refining and evolving your thinking. But if you become fundamentalist about a position that you have and you can't open your mind enough to look at other perspectives, learn from other people, consider opinions sometimes that are you know, flung in your face with vitriol, you're never really going to be able to grow or have intellectual flexibility or, yeah, I think the basis, it does really come down to that underpinning of intellectual humility and flexibility, which I think we do really struggle with, all of us, just by virtue of being human. Like I couldn't agree more. And it, it comes back to like that you said, that notion of adversity. I mean, it's a, it's omnipresent. It's in route as we speak. It's coming. That's why I think your content resonates with so many people and also triggers, quote unquote, so many people, because how dare you point out this truth that they're trying so desperately to to silo from everything else. And you're just pointing out the fact it's like this is this is your issue or your triggers. It doesn't mean everybody else needs to be bubble wrapped to tiptoe around you because you have this preference. And then we also look at the reality, as you're saying, what's more likely to happen, that the entire world is going to just cow down and bend over backwards to kiss your ass in every scenario, or that you need to develop resilience to be able to endure what it is, irrespective of that, with this anti-fragility. Yeah, it's interesting. There seems to be a growing number of, of people, a little bit, I would say, younger than us, that have been given the impression or have the impression that a utopian world is possible. And it's sort of like, if only we can police language enough, and if only we can all believe this, you know, very dogmatic set of ideas that only really work in the West, um, then somehow we can eradicate everything difficult from the world and live in this, you know, Camelot-like utopia where there's no adversity or difficulty ever. Like this idea that if we enact socialism, and I'm not one of those people who froths at the mouth when someone mentions socialism, but you know, just as as an example, um, if we enact socialism, somehow we're all going to be blissfully happy, and we'll all have more than enough money, and we can you know lie around putting flowers in our hair and writing poetry. And it's just sort of like, who the fuck is going to pay for that one? Like, have you thought about that? And like, yeah. you know, what makes you think that that sort of equality was going to improve your life? Why do you not think it's going to be equally worse across the board? Why have you not thought these things through? It's a very sort of, in my view, and again, I'm open to, to being corrected or hearing other perspectives on this, but it's a very childlike, idealistic view of the world that's really difficult to carry with you if you've been roughed up by life a little bit, you've experienced a bit of life, seen a little bit, had a bit of those hard knocks and dealt with actual adversity. And I'm really grateful that there are people that will read what I have to say and it resonates with them. It used to bother me that 
people would get so upset and so vitriolic and there were so many sort of you know just almost borderline hysterical direct message requests and you know people sending paragraphs in all caps as if I'd walked into their living room and screamed my content in their face to them personally <laughs> but you do that enough again and it just it's like exposure therapy one it fortifies you and two you you begin to realize it's really not about you you know you you've touched something in them that they don't want to have to deal with because it would be just as easy to say this piece of content doesn't apply to my life i'm not going to take it and scroll past and instead they have these massive reactions and they need me to engage with them on some level you know to the point they'll be making multiple accounts to send the same message or leave 50 comments on the in the comment section so yeah it's an interesting one it's an interesting dichotomy of being really loved by some apparently and loathed by others and i don't think either have that much to do with me and and i think that's the beauty in what you're what you teach because we see social media is very much an illusion it's very much fake it's yeah. it's la la land but you're working with with people all the time and so the therapy that you're giving them the therapy that you're you're engaging in is not content per se and vice versa so could you tell us sort of what that looks like because i would imagine you are emptying yourself you are using empathy you are just listening many times to kind of truly hear what's going on to be able to give that person that reflection to help them so what does that work look like yeah it's really cool to talk about this cuz i almost never speak about this in any of these conversations that i've had people much more focus on i guess the stuff i say on social media which as you said is not therapy it's not it's not therapeutic content and psychotherapy is my actual work that's the work i do day in day out and is the you know social media is it's it's open many doors i do enjoy it it's a cool outlet but it's not my work yeah you know, so seeing a client or a patient looks completely different it's a one to one relationship it's not a parasocial relationship it's a real relationship that you know forms over time as you get to know each other and trust forms like any relationship would and it's not always about just giving empathy or support or those things it's about actually helping somebody to make the meaningful change they want to in their life and yeah there's a lot of listening carefully and sometimes there's uh often there's reflecting things back to the person that they're sometimes telling you without telling you in words um helping them to make those links helping them to you know get eyes on parts of themselves they're quite blind to it's not advice giving you know it's not tips and tricks and hacks and you know you see all this stuff on insta therapy that if you're feeling angry why don't you hold an ice pack or some bullshit and it's sort of like that's really helpful isn't it hold a fucking ice pack um when i would say in psychoanalytic work it would be why are you angry where does that anger come from you know there's the mind is divided against itself which part of you is angry why have they taken over why are they running the show now so it's exploratory it's a collaborative sort of examination of the dynamics that are happening and there's a real focus on the dynamics that happen between you and your client or patient because 
anything, like I said, it's a real relationship. So anything that happens between you and the client is likely happening outside of therapy and all the other relationships. So when you work through those and understand those, and it comes up in so many forms, sometimes it's, you've made me really angry. Sometimes it's, I've fallen in love with you. Sometimes it's, I'm absolutely going to come to therapy and punish you and not speak. Sometimes it's, um, you know, you're like idealized and um, they hang off. And again, it's, it's the, the word for it is transference, which means that something from either within or from there and then is being transferred onto the therapist so that it can be acted out. And the things, things like that will happen outside of therapy all day, every day. We all experience them, whether we're aware of it or not. And often these are the things that are sort of swept under the rug or um, we pretend we didn't notice them and kind of carry on. And in therapy, you stop the whole show and you look at that thing very carefully. So it's incredibly rewarding, fascinating, just incredible work that I feel really lucky to be able to do. And, you know, to touch on something else, you said you kind of empty yourself and you don't. Because anything that I'm um, experiencing, so if you and I are working together and for some reason I start to feel very irritated, then I would ask my, not necessarily verbalize anything, but ask myself in my own mind, what am I, is this something that is about me and my stuff, this irritation? Or is this something that the client elicits in people in the way that they behave in relationships? You know, and then when you're able to understand what that is and be a little bit clearer about it, that's something that will, you can use in the work. And it's incredibly data-rich stuff. You know, there's some psychoanalysts who kind of think counter-transference, which is the therapists, what you're, that counter-transference is um, always about the client or patient. And I think that's a really arrogant view because it's like, well, no, you have your own stuff as well. Sometimes counter-transference really is about you and your own shit, which is why being in your own therapy is as important as any other part of training or having, you know, while you're training. In, in the UK, it's a requirement. You can't qualify unless you've had extensive personal therapy to kind of get your own mental and emotional ducks in a row before you see other people and, I guess, leak your own transference all over mm -hmm. them. And I think it's, it's really useful as well to experience therapy for, you know, like a decent length of time from that part of the room, because then you can understand the profound vulnerability that can come with actually going into therapy, which you might never know if you weren't a patient yourself, and get an idea of what works and what doesn't, what feels good and helpful in therapy and what doesn't, what's just discomfort that you're trying to avoid. So yeah, I think that's just as important, just as much as any other part of training or reading or professional development. And it's everything, yeah. right? If in the martial arts, they say when one teach to learn. So when you're having this conversation with somebody and like you said, something comes up in you, like you said, maybe you write that down and afterwards that's your, your thing to go when you go speak to your therapist and say, hey, so uh, this keeps coming up and I don't know where the hell it's coming from. What am I missing? Yeah. So it's... In therapy, you have something called supervision, where you see, um, you know, a much more experienced, you know, much more senior psychotherapist, and you consult on your cases with them. So it's a bit like therapy for therapists, but about your caseload. 
it's I've been very lucky to have an just an absolutely incredible um supervisor who's very well known in like the psychoanalytic world because he's basically just fucking brilliant and you know talking to him about so this and, and just being incredibly honest again that intellectual humility thing comes into it if you want to learn you have to be okay with being wrong so it's going to him saying i really think i fucked up there i made this intervention and um i think it was really not useful or um you know this client is really getting on my nerves and i don't know what that's about and then exploring it and sometimes it's okay now we understand this client by his or her you know way of being with other people or trying to get their needs met they elicit the, this response across their life and that's really the crux of the problem that brought them to therapy or sometimes it's this is related to that thing that happened in your life or your particular nerve that's been like hooked into and now you need to take that to therapy and work through that yourself so it's like a constant process of psychological evolution i suppose that um is just inevitable through both being a therapist and training with a supervisor like being a supervisee and being a patient all at the same time and yeah i think you have to be a little bit obsessed with this stuff to do this work because it's intense very very intense yeah it's one of the most emotionally and physically draining things you can do if you're actually in it and you're you're truly connected. It can be, yeah. So I think on Wednesday I had six back-to-back clients, which was a very intelligent thing to do. <laughs> and by the end of the day, I was um just drained. I'd like not because um not drained necessarily in a negative way, but drained of, I suppose, just cognitive and emotional energy. Because there is such an investment of self in this sort of work. And it is a real relationship. Every one of those people that I see means something to me and I'm invested in their well-being and in helping them to make the change invested in the part of them that came to therapy and asks for help as opposed to the part of them that's in therapy trying to you know sabotage everything which we all do I do it with my own therapist as well <laughs> and um we all have our you know defenses and and I suppose like survival mechanisms that aren't always the most helpful and you know once you've you've done that and you worked with people so you might have one person who thinks they're in love with you then another person who is suicidal another person who you know had the most traumatic history you know sometimes like you uh, finish a session and I'll cry because i just it's it's so awful what this person went through you almost can't fathom how are they still standing and then you have a bunch of those sessions and um at the end of it yeah it's 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 not like you're just bursting with energy and want to click your heels and you know you need to be quiet and kind of i guess recharge yeah and that was the other part i was going to ask you doing the work that you do one must put up barriers to keep oneself intact what are you doing besides speaking to another therapist and like you said having a lot of downtime and cultivating empty space with intention. What else do you do? I mean, before we got on here, you were working out and, you know, doing your, your diet is, is locked in. I know those things are integral to that success. What are other things that you enjoy or sorry, maybe not enjoy, but are necessary for you to, to continue to operate the way you do? I think non-negotiables would be 
well, supervision is an absolute non-negotiable for me now. Um, I don't necessarily, well, I'm still, I think I have enough hours to credit. So I need to go through my accreditation process. I definitely have more than enough hours, but I'm just do anything in my power to avoid paperwork. So I haven't done it yet. But um, even if I, you know, had been practicing for 30 years and I didn't need to see a supervisor anymore, I probably still would because it's that always learning and just just the fact that it's somebody who has that much more experience than you they've seen more they've the same hurdles and trials that you're going through they've they've scaled those you know climbed those mountains already and they can say to you when you climb this mountain and you go over this rock there's this troll waiting behind whatever do you know what i mean as opposed to like they've Absolutely. they've climbed it they've got the map they've done the topography as opposed to going up there blind or guessing or, you know, pretending that you have it all figured out, which is another thing that I find deeply, sinfully fucking irritating about some people in my field, especially the ones on social media, that they behave as though being a therapist means you somehow understand better how to be a human being. And no, you fucking don't. You have some skills, you have expertise, you've learned, you know, this way of being with other people that's very very different to normal conversation or normal interaction but in yourself as a person even if you're a little bit further down the trench you're still very much in the trenches of being a fallible person like anybody else uh, i started ranting and i've forgotten the point i was making um what was i saying before you that were, you were discussing the idea that they may feel this nobility around the idea that they are better because they've done this and they're in this oh, position. Just, no, recording. just before I said that. Oh, prior to that, um, how people feel that um, as a therapist, outside of that therapy, they'll get on Instagram and they'll do all these different things. Oh, yeah, sorry. You were asking me about what I do. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's, it's therapy, having to deal with all the things, um, your own defenses, your own edges of growth and... Um, your own stuff, because we all have it. And sometimes it's going back to the same thing that you thought you dealt with like 10 years ago and realizing there's a new facet of it that you never really thought about before. Or with the big stuff, like, you know, there was violence and this and that and the other. And then when that's out of the way, you start to notice, oh, all these subtle things happen to me too. And I never really focused on those because like the violence and so on was so big and cataclysmic and has such an impact that you almost tuned out like psychological damage from other things. And to be brutally transparent, I'm working on exactly what you asked. How do I look after myself? I'm re um, one of the things I struggle with is life is chronic insomnia. And I think I just, partly I just came out that way. Apparently, even as a baby, I wasn't much of a sleeper at all, to the point that my parents would give me, you know, a tiny bit of raw on flights, which you could do in the 80s. People <laughs> did that shit to their kids to like, you know, pray that I would sleep. And um, I think they only did it once or twice because each time I just went ape shit and ran up and down the aisles um, <laughs> instead of actually going to sleep. Not the desired so effect. Partly it's that, not the desired effect. And then I think some factors from my history that have made sleep a you know a specific challenge for me so i'm it's something that i'm actively working on so 7 hours last night is a real victory that and over the last year from december 22 
I um, really sort of took charge of my health because over the COVID period, I kind of let it go, um, had gained a lot of weight and generally was just not in a great, great place health-wise, had some autoimmune symptoms and things like that. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of pretty proud of the work I've put into the last year and kind of reversing certain health issues, losing that weight more, building strength and so on. And just working out is is such a um such a pressure valve. It really is. You you can go in feeling a certain way and all kind of wound up and very much in your head and disembodied. And you come out and sort of like, well I was worrying about that. <laughs> That's not even important. Um, it just it really does um, shift your state in a really powerful and meaningful way. And I was talking to my trainer about this a few days or weeks recently, um, who's just a really special person who's like become a friend and so on. And I really like the fact that by especially weight training, you're purposely putting yourself in a difficult situation and making yourself tolerate it. And then making things more difficult and then you tolerate it and then you make, and it's sort of like a way of practicing resilience. So there's so much to it that I just, um, I really do enjoy. One of the things I do is I have to do a certain number of steps every day. And when I finish work, I immediately jump on the treadmill. And when I first started, it was painful and it sucked. And it was kind of like, uh, I've gotten so out of shape. I don't really enjoy this. It's difficult. My nerve pain is flaring up. And one year later, well, this, this feeling started a while ago, but, you know, I get on and it's like that feeling of sinking into a hot bath, you know, like, oh, that's mm. better. And as soon as you start walking and the body starts moving, it's like, yeah, that's yeah. better. Because we're not meant, I, you know, you really kind of realize that by m- making exercise a part of your life for a decent period of time is that, oh, my body's meant to move. Like This has such a profound impact on like my whole system because there's no duality is there your your brain and your body aren't two separate entities and it's like a whole body impact and you really feel the difference from that sluggish sedentary slightly low mood to being active and how energy generating that can be again physically and mentally so I find that really useful Sleep, as I mentioned, um, what a game changer sleep is. Every time I have a good night's sleep, I just think, is this how people are? Like, life would be fucking so easy if I could <laughs> sleep every night. Be life on easy mode. Um, you know, and just getting better about, um, I used to be really, really poor as an adult, like, di- like dire, basically homeless kind of poverty and like going to the food bank and so on. And because of that, I often, um, I think as a direct sort of reaction to that, actually, I often work myself to the point of burnout because I never want to go back there. So, you know, really addressing that and tackling it head on, as scary as it sometimes feels to even start to go back to that place mentally, you know, and, and addressing the fact that finishing work at nine or 10 at night is not sustainable. Or overscheduling and undersleeping is not sustainable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those sorts of things, taking on too many, learning to say no, you can't take on every opportunity and just being, being much more boundaried. And that's a great lesson you can take from therapy. There's something in therapy you call the frame. 
and it's the frame around the work, the guardrails around the work, because there's um that to, to borrow from my supervisor, that's those are his words, to do work that is goes to such vulnerable and what feels like dangerous places, you need a very solid, airtight, immovable container around it, because that's what allows you to have that freedom within that container and keep, I guess, both people safe. So things like, you know, whatever your policies are around the work, when you meet, um, how you address communication in between sessions, all of those things all make up the frame. And you can really take that and apply it to the rest of your life. There needs to be a solid frame in place in order to have the freedom and discipline to do everything else within that frame. So yeah, I'm actively working on those things. I've by no means perfected them, but I'm, you know, in a better place than I was a year ago or six months ago and continuing, continues to be a work in progress. I'm so happy for you. I'm glad you're doing that. You deserve it, obviously. And like you said, if we're if we're truly serving other people the way that you are, those other people deserve that because if they get the what's left over from us, what the hell are we giving them? We're showing them, hey, you're not a priority to me. I claim that you are, but I'm prioritizing this other bullshit that I'm using to justify whatever compromise, self-sabotage, resistance, adversity, whatever it is. But those people deserve it. Those people need it. So all of us that are, you know, we sharpen the blade, but it eventually can go blunt. So, and that's the thing. We're smart enough to know it even in real time. But then we, well, I'm already here. So fuck it. I'm just going to keep going. Again, if that were somebody telling us that that's what their internal dialogue is, we step back and say, okay, how's it working out for you? Where's the evidence that this is actually helping you in these endeavors, blah, 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 blah. But when it's us, it's often difficult to have that kind of perspective. Yeah, because the emotional charge isn't there with other people. And the internal drives and you know impulses and resistances and blocks, you, you're not experiencing any of that. You're just looking at the information, like the, cogni the cognitive stuff with somebody else, it's sort of like an intellectual idea. When it's yourself, you have to deal with the part of you that doesn't, doesn't want to get up from the sofa or, um, you know, is stuck doom scrolling and you have to, you know, find a, through Herculean effort to break that cycle and get up and do whatever it is you need to do. For me, I think it probably didn't come from such a noble place of, um, you know, I really need to be well rested so I can give everybody the best of me. It was more, oh, I'm not going to be able to sustain this if I'm not um, taking better care of myself. I think that's the complete, that's the truth. And I'm not going to pretend <laughs> otherwise. And also just that I really do take pride in my work and I'm not there to smile at somebody over Zoom and just, you know, put them in a good mood. I, I want, if you're coming to me and you're giving me your money, then I want to actually help you. So I say no to more people than I say yes to, because I won't take somebody on unless I think I really can help them. And the nice thing about private practice is you can choose who you work with. But yeah, I think that those, those two things combined that it really matters to me that I'm doing my job as well as I possibly can. And that I'm helping people to make the change that, or, you know, the understanding or insight or ameliorate whatever it is that they want to out of therapy. And I want to be able to sustain it without feeling like fucking death every day.
But I, I suspect I have that gene because some people have that gene that means you can function on a lot less sleep. Because I would say for the last three years, I've averaged about four hours a night. And yeah, I often have people, how are you? How have you worked out today and seen clients and done whatever? And I don't really know how. I don't. And I think I'm. I'm maybe one day I'll get it, get it tested, or it's just complete lunacy. I don't know. One or the other. <laughs> Well, there's a fine line, right? <laughs> yeah. I think I think also I love the fact that you are engaging in this these physicalities because that's very much what the warrior class does. That's very much mm. about this idea of walking, this idea of strengthening, this idea of, like you said, it weightlifting is called resistance training, literally. So we had this micro adversity and now we we get beyond it. And now we're stronger. We have more repetitions. We have better belief. We have better form. And now all of a sudden, we that allows us to redouble our efforts within that. And that continues to just stack. Yeah. And now we get these wins. Again, that sets the momentum for everything that we're doing. And like you said, that client may not be able to put their, their finger on it, but they can feel it. Yeah. Yeah, that's really insightful. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's true for any, any part of the therapeutic process. Um, and, you know, it's in fact, I wouldn't say... It, I think it's mostly true. They can't put their finger on it, but you you feel it. Even if you can't feel it in itself, you feel the impacts of it. Yeah, you can't, you just, we even had a module when I was training on self-care. I started to loathe that phrase because now self-care can just mean anything. Yep. Um, because now apparently words don't have to actually, when you use a word, it doesn't have to, you know, be linked to its definition it can just mean anything that you imagined in your head so self-care might be i don't know online shopping and going into credit card debt and having a bubble bath and and eating chocolate cake but when you know if you just think of the actual term self-care it's just talk about it a lot in um this like online community i run which is it's the basic non-negotiables that help you to function properly that's what self-care is whatever that looks like in your individual circumstances. No, it's not going and buying a big cake and eating it. That maybe some days that self-care, I don't know. But it's do you take like take your medication on time? Brush your teeth every day. Are you going to to therapy? Just are you going to bed on time? What are you eating? Like are you eating things that make you feel sluggish and ill and then impact your functioning? Or are you also making sure that some good stuff goes in that can sustain you well. And it's it's one of those things that is like the dishes or brushing your teeth or having a shower. You just have to keep doing it every single day. And it's fucking annoying that you have to. It really is. Like, it's like, will these dishes ever fuck off? Like, why, why are there always dishes in the sink? How many goddamn times do I have to wash dishes before? It's like Sisyphus, put, you know, pushing the boulder up the hill. Yeah. Um, but and it is irritating um but you just have to do those things and however that you know manifests for you whether it's you know you have to sit and do the boring 10 minute meditation but that's what keeps you going or go and talk to you know your therapist even if you'd rather put needles in your eyes than talk about your feelings but then you do it you know like going to the gym i don't want to go to the gym i don't want to but afterwards you feel like oh, i'm glad i did that so yeah, figure out what those things are for you. It's like basic. I, I have a um, a course in my membership community things called mental health hygiene that goes through the basic things that everybody needs to feel 
well or to have some sort of psychological and emotional overall well a sense of well-being and then the basics are the things like sleep and you know again i don't like to be you know fundamentalist about anything i'm not going to um and it's out of my scope of practicing i'm not a nutritionist or trained in anything like that but you know like eat your burger but just you know add some broccoli on the side like have something um that something should be going in that is actually um sustaining you in some way making you know giving you the nutrition that you need your body can't run on fucking skittles right it needs it needs some other things as well again like the medication stuff and having everyone needs a reason to wake up in the morning you know you can call that purpose you can call that but everybody needs something to wake up for every day otherwise you're going to feel empty and just rudderless in the world um and lost everybody needs meaningful social connection you need to physically move you have to think about yourself as a very primitive thing in a world that it has evolved past you because i think it has and the world that we live in and the lifestyle so many of us are living especially in cities is that you're on your bum when you're working and then you're on your bum when you're relaxing and then you're on your bum when you're traveling um you know whether it's in a car on a bus or whatever it is um you're not getting very you know outside very much um you're not seeing people very much you're connected to this you know misery device um misery and dissociation device uh, yeah the self and yeah. um you're overly connected but at the same time more isolated than ever you haven't seen the sun in 2 weeks <laughs> because it's like winter and the sun doesn't come out till whenever till you finished already started work and you you just have to find a way to um i guess find counterweights to some of those things like maybe instead of doom scrolling for 2 hours put on a, a song that you love and just go outside for 10 minutes and and like see the sun or instead of you know on the bus or the train just staring into your phone and having your brain bombarded with utter fucking noise that is cluttering up your mind just look outside and daydream what happened to that how nice was that as a kid to be on long car journeys and just look outside and daydream and take the world in connect with somebody even if it's all you can manage is once a month see a human being in real life instead of dming them on instagram someone that you never met in a different part of the world you know um or facetime that's a good at least you see someone's face and their vocal tone and facial expression do something in your life that is meaningful to you whatever that is if you're creative like make art maybe once a week that's what you do in the evening or um weightlift or meditate or whatever do something that brings you some form of joy cuz life isn't meant to be this like fucking misery slog of um achievement and grasping for more and flexing to other people whatever it, whatever it is it shouldn't be live for yourself and spend as little time as possible on your phone um so yeah there's there's so much to it that is beyond just the medical model of you know you have anxiety take this pill which some people do need that i'm uh, by no way anti meds i think meds are absolutely life changing and life saving in so many instances and 
there are many instances where literally going for a walk every day would probably be just as life-changing. Yeah, it creates a similar hormonal cascade, like you said. And, and what are you doing with that single walk? You're checking so many boxes. You get that sun exposure. You're getting cardio. You're walking. You're physically changing your perspective. And that comes back to exactly what you're describing because all those things are mm-hmm. actions that we're taking, right? All those are things that we have agency within. And then it encourages the behavior. And then, as you were saying, there's that initial pushback or friction. But once we're committed, we make peace with that. And just like you said, when you were walking on the treadmill initially, it's like, oh, this is impossible. You know, all these things are sore. But I look at you now and it's like the woman before me now, you are primed to do anything that you want to do. And let's face it, I have never been in a situation where being in a physical condition that was was good did not serve me. There have been situations mm-hmm. where there are emergencies yeah. where I have to be able to run, have to be able to walk, have to do whatever it is. And if I wasn't able to do those things, then there's all kinds of repercussions that are going to be negative. And then, you know, my story. So I took my physicality for granted for a long time. And then being injured and being paralyzed and being told I'd never walk again. I didn't know any of this. Okay. Yeah. I joined the military at 38. And then in, at 2012, when I was with the, the light infantry in the United States, I suffered a spinal injury that let me paralyze from the neck down. So that, so I turned 40 in a bed, broke, divorced, bedridden, and paralyzed, trying to figure out what the hell to do with my life. So all these things about what you're describing, about how these people that claim this victimhood, that shows me that they've never actually been in a situation where they've really been a victim, or these people that are romanticizing some of these ideals, that shows me they've never actually been there. And it just is something that looks good or is pretty or something they got from some social media bullshit. And that deep introspection, that dark night of the soul forces us to cut away all the bullshit. That's what adversity does. It burns away. It, it doesn't show us who we are, but it reveals all the things that we're not. And when we're at brass tacks, oftentimes we may not like what we see because for me, I went back through the five stages. I went through regret. I went through all the denial, anger, bargaining, depression for a long time. But I kept cycling back into anger because I was like, why the fuck was I hesitating? Why am I waiting? Why did I choose to binge on Netflix or take a nap when I could have been doing these other things that would have made me better or frankly would have been a conversation I could have had with somebody that I actually wanted to say something about, but I was too afraid to. All these things. And then after... There's so actually, much of that. Right? Yeah. Just in everything you just said, there's there's so much there. One, I didn't know that was your story. And yeah, that's incredible i mean clearly you recovered from that after being told you'd never have to read your book now i didn't even <laughs> i didn't know this shows like how clued in i am well done me um so i'm sorry for that no no don't. Um, it's, a, it's a, there's so much stuff out there don't even think that that but that's what the the tedx came from and the book came from and then that was the impetus to begin this kind of work but you were saying i'm sorry no it's just an, an incredible i really want to hear the whole story actually and the other thing is to come back to the medication and, and the moving stuff. Yes, it does um, release a cascade of good chemicals and so on. But you also have to make the distinction that there are some people who are like, for example, so unwell with depression that they they wouldn't be able to get off the sofa and go for that walk if they hadn't taken the medication. So, yes. you know, sometimes they need that just to t- like give them enough of a boost that they can then 
you know, they want to do that, you know, I'm taking, you know, grabbing hold of my agency and so on. But sometimes you just really are too unwell or, you know, have anxiety so debilitating that you can't leave your house. And again, sometimes just like with ADHD, for example, it's a wiring issue, right? So you, yeah, you can learn strategies and you can mitigate some of the issues um, or deficits or whatever that you experience in the world. But time and time again, you hear people who've taken ADHD medication. It's like it's like putting glasses on when you've had poor eyesight your whole life, and it's like this is how it can be. People can. This is how other people function, and it's often like that with um, mental health difficulties. So just to be very clear that I'm in no way opposed to medication, and and there's a place for it, and just as much a proponent of um, taking personal responsibility for your experience, whatever it is, because nobody else is going to. So personal responsibility can look like actually, you know, deciding to ask for help and taking your medication. That's personal responsibility. It's the most responsible thing you can possibly do um, when you're that unwell. The other part that you were saying about, you know, these people have never really understood what it means to be a victim. Again, to make the distinction that there are and I try and make this distinction as often as possible because as somebody that criticizes victimhood a lot, I want to be sure that the distinction in this message is clear, that the criticism is never of people who've actually been victimized. I've worked with many, many people who've been victims of horrific things that would just then chills down your spine and you thank God for the set of problems that you have. Yes. And often those are the people who awe you with their resilience they don't think they are because what their perception is of their struggles and the internal sort of torment that they're living with but just the the way they navigate the world even with that cross to bear which is a heavy cross to bear is it will just leave you in awe it really it really does and then there's another group that often has decided to put themselves in the position of like a powerless dependent who the, everybody else is responsible for or that they're entitled to certain things. I don't know why they feel that, but then because because they're alive and breathing. Somebody else should be giving me this or the world owes me my that my dreams should come true or I deserve X, Y and Z, you know, for the world, the privilege everybody else has of my presence. Um, <laughs> and that kind of like, this very it's a really interesting dichotomy because it's the combination of entitlement and almost a narcissistic self-focus with a dependence and a powerlessness mm. and a sort of self-defeating way of being so two very very different groups just to be yeah clear on that but yeah i want to know more about your story sure we'll talk about it sometime and to your point, I love that idea that because as warriors, what in combat, there are casualties and there are victims. So the casualty is a mm. person who's out there actually swinging the sword or, or engaging the weapon. Even when they're injured, they still have that mentality of the warrior of how do I get to cover? How do I continue to engage? How do I get out of this situation? As opposed to just lying there when they could be doing something, where they could be engaging some sort of agency. And now they literally become detrimental to everyone else 
because now for every one that's injured, it takes at least a couple to pull them to safety. But you have to have that mentality of wanting to go out and, and surviving and winning that the fight's not over just because you fell down. That's when it actually begins. Um, it's a really funny one because when you come back to what you talked about, that, you know, going through those really difficult periods of life, like what you went through, there's, you know, not that much that's more difficult than that, thinking that you've just lost the agency of your body or that you're never going to be able to um, have any sort of dominion over your physical self or physicality. I can't imagine the kind of torment that would cause and torture, how torturous that must feel and the helplessness and anger and so on that comes with it. And that or, you know, whatever some of the stuff that I or others have experienced. And it's in those moments that you find resources within yourself that you didn't know you had because you never before needed them. It's like you have no option. It's either now I continue to sink and that's that, or I fight like hell and pull my claw my way out of this, even if I'm on my knees. And I don't think those things can be substituted by fucking cold showers or whatever people think causes, you know, that or weight training or affirmations or whatever the hell people promote. I think it's there's no substitute for that other than you actually have to go through something like that. And I wouldn't wish that on anybody, but that's how it is. So, you know, when you mentioned about the soldier, that he's still got that warrior mindset, it struck me that I think that's probably how you would feel and how you would react. But I wonder if that's actually true across the board. Yeah, I don't know. I I think that's at least from the mentality of being injured, that may be part of what we do as, as of the warrior class. But the idea yeah. of staying in that place of saying, poor me, at least at the time. And I, yeah. when I was lying in the bed, I absolutely went through that. I went through all that. I looked at every cognitive, you know, <laughs> every kind of justification on my mind. This isn't fair. Why is the universe or God doing this to me? I'm a good person. Wait a minute. Maybe this happened because I did something bad. And now this is karma coming to, to kick my ass. And then you, you're stuck in this place of, but what did I do? And then I was in that bed for four months. So I unpacked everything from my divorce and my injury all the way back to my parents' divorce as a kid. But the more I would look at it and the more honest I was, I was like, I couldn't find anything. I couldn't find anything that would, was I perfect? No. Was I a good person for the most part? Yes. And it's like, so what would justify this? And that's when I realized in my experience, the only meaning that adversity has is the meaning that we assign it that we are willing to be courageous in that in that effort towards it. And that's the beauty of like you were saying, you get to that point where you have no other choice and adversity offers you no other choice. And when there's no other choice, the choice is simple. You fight. In my case, I, like there was a long and slow period of sinking. And, and then it, I just, I don't know. I mean, it's a very long conversation to go into what turned things around. There's a certain point you get to and you just think, I have to find something within me or I just let the earth open up and swallow me up. You know, there's, there's no, not much lower than this it can get. I think this comes back to this egocentricity that we have where you think things happen because of you. And sometimes you have to sort of be slapped upside the head by life to realize it's not like everything isn't fucking about you. So yeah, maybe 
there's a reason for everything. Maybe there isn't. I don't know. I don't know how the universe works. I don't know if the higher power is deciding this. How 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 the fuck would I know? Um, and you know, I think we've all been in that why me place. But I don't know if this is true of everybody. But when you've had enough situations that make you think why me, you get to the point of thinking, well, why not me? Seriously, what's so special about me that why not me? And you watch the news and you see like people go through these awful things and you assume that somehow you're invincible or it'll never happen to you because you're spe- you're you, right? You're special. Why would it this happens to other people? Yes. In their mind, it's exactly the same. Exactly the same experience. So it's ha- got to happen to somebody. Why shouldn't it happen to you? I don't know. It, it's some of, Sometimes there is no good reason for why some things happen. Why do children get cancer? I don't know. Or maybe it's a bit of both. Maybe there's, you know, some divine order and maybe there's some random chaos. I don't know. I think but you can you can sit and mentally masturbate over that for, you know, as long as you like. Or you can say, I don't know why this has happened. I don't fucking like it, but this is the situation I'm in. So either now I find a way to pull myself out of this. Like if all I can do is drag myself across the floor, then I'll do that till I can crawl till I can stand, till I can walk, do that. You know, if you can't move your arm, move your finger. Find like find that will to live. The only thing you can do is forward m- momentum and do what you can with the cards you've been dealt and the things that you can control. You, no, it's not your fucking fault that you're, you know, living through a second recession in your lifetime or that there are no jobs or that um, most people like my age, like 40, couldn't probably afford a house in London or um, that, you know, when you were a child, these awful things happened to you or that you got parallel. No, it's not your fault. But how you respond to it is the only choice you have. So make the right choice. Make the right choice. because. There's no guarantee of anything. There's no guarantee of tomorrow. As far as I know, from my human vantage, very (laughs) flawed human vantage point, this is the one life we have. So are you going to sit there crying about why me and poor me? Or are you going to take every single precious minute and make this life worthwhile and good for you for your own sake? Who are you punishing? You know, like often that why me and my you know like victimhood stuff and you know the world owes me is a very passive aggressive form of protest it's sort of like i'm going to punish myself to punish you punish everyone around me and you're not you're ruining your own life don't do that just for your own sake you deserve better so do what you can with what you have and yeah, it's useful to be philosophically minded, but I think people really can go too far with it. There isn't meaning in everything. I think that that's what scares them is the reality that not everything is controlled by a an omnipresent being. Absolutely that, not. That oftentimes it is just sheer chaos, which scares them because one, there's no rhyme or reason. And two, that means that, holy shit, they actually do have to take some sort of ownership and accountability in their life. And now, as you were saying, if I'm punishing myself so often and I'm not getting the attention, I just have to do it more and more in their mind yeah. to justify this this lazy martyrdom, which is what a victim is many times, and this becomes collateral damage. Lazy to martyrdom. <laughs> Tell me about victimhood this. mentality as yeah. opposed to actual an actual victim. Right, right. But Absolutely. um 
Tell me about this tattoo here, if you could. Oh, this means, um, this is from Sikh scripture. I had a feeling. It says, Nirbhav Nirveh, which means no fear and no hate. I love that. We have some cool scripture. It's a powerful reminder, right? That's why you have it, clearly. Yeah. Sometimes there's something that really, like, one, if you're a tattoo person, you get tattoos. It's just one of those things that you do. Um, but also sometimes it's like, a, yeah, something you, you, you need to see often or, or maybe it encapsulates something really important about your life philosophy or whatever. But yeah. Would you say that's your most important tattoo? I've got quite a few. I really like this one. I don't know how, if you're going to see it upside down, it's um, Kali, which is um, the Hindu goddess of destruction. And wow, um, I, I love her really, really. Lo- yeah, it is. It's incredible work. Um, I love her very, very much <laughs> and what she stands for. And um, I've got a few that I really like. Hopefully get more <laughs> next time we speak. Yes. Hopefully I'll have more. <laughs> I'm sure you will. Yeah. And the Lord of the Rings. Movies <laughs> or books? Tell me which one. Um, or are you? Probably movies at the moment. Mm. Um, I did read the books when I was in my early-ish teens. Some of the books. I don't think I got through all of them because they're, they're quite difficult to read. Yeah, when you're... They're, they're, very, they're very dense and semi-jargonistic. Yeah. It's like, oh my God, <laughs> just show yeah. me the movie so I can get the idea. But the films are great. And for me and you, it's like one of those comfort blankets in life. Yes. Um, well, storytelling is just so powerful anyway. And stories like this that kind of really stand the test of time, they seem to speak to natural ethics, things that human beings do naturally and that the, the values and morality and ideas that we seem to respond to. So coming together, fighting for something that's bigger than yourself, um, like fraternity or brotherhood or sisterhood or whatever, um, the, you know, the like universal fight of good versus evil, how to handle adversity, the vicissitudes of life they're going to so there's so much to it like that's symbolic and then they're just like epic films it's beautiful to watch yes. like there's there's a work of art isn't it so I, I really love that some of that stuff the kind of fantasy um it's a great escape it's a great respite from the life can be really difficult sometimes and especially if you have like a fertile imagination i think you seem to, people seem to resonate with those sorts of stories. Like, you know, obviously there's, there's so much that isn't fantasy that also resonates, that's also interesting, but there's something unique and special about these sorts of stories, just the metaphor and the symbolism and um, being transported to another world um, that I, yeah, find really compelling. I do too. I think as part of us is the human condition that hero's journey never gets old. Yeah. And like you said, then when you put it into this additional realm, and, and again, what are we seeing? As you were mentioning earlier with this idea of the, the warrior carries a sword, but they often use the sword as a shield to protect those as opposed to this idea of just this blanket violence that goes through those things. And again, all these these lessons about restraint and the understanding of, you know, when is when do I deploy this? What are the repercussions if I do this? Even if there's justification for this, what does that really mean? And then throughout society and then morally and ethically, we can apply that in any of the situations in any arena that we enter. So it's powerful. Yeah. Was it like, like fairy stories or fairy tales? It's a way of teaching children 
right and wrong, right? Because because there's always a, a like a hero, a villain. There's you know the whole arc of like the problem, how the problem solved, the good versus evil stuff. I think it's a very compelling way to learn, and also the the recall value of learning something through storytelling versus learning it through I don't know being preached at or whatever. It's completely different. Completely yeah. different. And we've always like whether it's you know painting a picture of a unicorn or not a unicorn, but like you know on the cave wall, and then singing songs about your community or your ancestors. Or just, you know, like the folklore and mythology that comes with it. Because every culture has it, right? Incredible yes. mythology. So it's it's across cultures, across time, across the world. It just seems something that's really innate to us, to our psychology and the way that we're wired. Like we we love stories. Story like even, you know, think of someone like David Goggins and like like his life journey, for example, that again, that hero's journey resonance and um, like the arc and it's compelling because it's humanizing and it gives you hope and it's inspiring and it's the storytelling aspect of it that just makes makes it so compelling and so interesting. And feel, well, I feel quite drawn to it anyway. Yeah, as do I. So, mm-hmm. I could talk to you forever. Um, and I want to be respectful of your time. Tell us about In the Trenches. Tell us about how we can learn more about you, follow you, learn from you, apply some of the things you're doing. Where can we go? So I have a private practice where I see one-to-one therapy clients. Uh, is your practice full uh, at wait- this point? I was going to say you're on a waiting um, list, I would imagine. Yeah, there's a waiting list. And I have this online community membership called The Trenches, which is completely different to, to private practice, but it's something I do really enjoy because it's been a way to connect with the people who resonate or, you know, my content resonates with them and a way for them to, you know, people that want to learn war or are interested in personal development or learning about these concepts. So I'm sort of make, we'll make courses for them, have webinars. We have a hangout every month where we all meet up and talk, which is really nice. Um, we've got a members forum. Yeah, it's been like a really rewarding, unexpected, you know, area of work. And there's a waiting list which you can look at in my Instagram bio. And then I'm on Instagram and on Twitter and been on a fair few podcasts at this point. So um <laughs> there are those to look up. I guess that's where you can find me. <laughs> yeah. And her her content is tremendous. I shared something from you on my story and my wife saw it and she was like that's a breath of fresh air i was like yeah that's that's why i love her stuff so that's so kind thank your wife for me i i absolutely (laughs) will thank her for you and uh thank you for all that you're doing and um it's been an honor to to talk to you and i i look forward to other conversations as well yeah likewise i really really enjoyed this conversation i'm not just saying that it's just just been easy and it's flowed and yeah been very enjoyable so thank you for that um thanks for inviting me thanks for trusting me thank you for listening to this episode of octa Nonverba. if this message resonates with you please share it out with others on social media hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts to learn more please go to marcus aureliusanderson.com and join his octa Nonverba inner circle 
get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.